You're listening to audio from Cibolo Creek Community Church. To learn more, visit CiboloCreek.com. So next nine weeks or nine innings, we're gonna explore a couple of different topics about what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ in the context of the themes of baseball. And so we're gonna, we're gonna talk about like fans versus players and what does that mean for us as Christ followers We're gonna talk about your place on the field and how the spirit of God has wired or gifted you to assume a certain position on the field that's incredibly important to the working of the church and what God wants to do through it. We're also gonna talk about like when life serves up wins and losses and how we find our way through that and how we deal with it. We're gonna talk about things like what happens when life throws you curveballs or sliders or sinkers and things, change-ups, things you weren't planning, hoping for, things that are painful and hard, how do we find our way through that? And then uh, I'm already working on the very last, the ninth inning message, and we're gonna, we're gonna do a sermon on the bottom of the ninth, like when things are really, really critical, and uh, we'll see what God has to say about that. Now, I don't typically um, give a title to my messages. I mean, we usually work in a theme, And I'm really creative. I'll just say part one, part two, (laughs) part three, part four. But um, we are uh, giving titles to our sermons uh, this Sunday, I mean this summer. And so today's today's message is entitled Opening Day. I want to talk to you a little bit about the opening day surrounding the church. So whether you've been to church much in your life or not, you're probably familiar with this very famous quote of Jesus. Jesus said, I will build my church in the gospel of Matthew chapter 16. Now, most of us as Americans particularly, we read that and we think we know what that means. We go, he will build my, uh, Jesus said, I will build my church. And we have, we have an understanding of what this word means. And so a lot of people are sometimes confused about, well, Jesus said he would build his church, but I don't know of any church structure, any kind of a a place that he ever built. So did he not do it? Well, no, because this word is a really lousy translation of the word that Jesus used. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he used a Greek word called ekklesia. Now, ecclesia has nothing to do with bricks and mortar or wood or structure or ceilings or walls or stained glass and steeples. That that word didn't mean anything to anybody like that in those days. When Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, he was talking about an assembly of people or even a movement of people. It was all about a community of people. The word specifically means to call out from, but not just from something, to call out from something to something. So it'd be sort of like a minor league baseball player being called up out of the minors to the majors. And so when Jesus said, I will build my church, he's talking about a group of people, an assembly, a movement of men and women who were called out of one lifestyle and called to something else, something bigger, something higher in purpose, something eternal in size. So it's interesting, every time I run across this, um, this quote of Jesus, I, I will build my church, I always, always am reminded about an interesting thing that happened here a number of years ago. Um, you know, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary as a church. 
And so I'm just, I'm in this kind of mode right now where I'm just remembering all these wonderful uh, highlights and adventures and, and experiences of the last 25 years. And so um, we started our church in 1996. And um, then for the next six and a half years, we met over in the cafeteria and the hallways of Fair Oaks Ranch Elementary School. So every Saturday morning, this big crew of people would come together there at the, at the elementary school. We'd tear down all of the lunchroom tables. We'd have to wheel them all the way down to the opposite side of the school and put them in the gymnasium. And then we'd come back and we'd set up the auditorium. We had this stage that we wheeled in and out and set up for, for our services. And then we would literally turn the hallways into classrooms from nursery all the way through our elementary school age children. And it was quite an operation. And then every Sunday morning after the services closed, a group of people would just start tearing it all down, packing it in these trailers, hauling it off. And then we'd have to set the school back up, hopefully better than when we found it for school the next day. For six and a half years, we did that. And then it became obvious at some point that we needed a place of our own. Uh, we had grown to about 250 people at that time, and it just wasn't realistic to continue to be a mobile church. I think the school was ready for us to find a place of our own, and, and, and we'd had a great relationship with them, but just that many people every Sunday and all the operation that it took. And so we kind of think of the elementary school as like our first apartment. That's where we got married and we started having kids and we outgrew the place. And so in about 2002, we decided, you know what, we're going to have to build our first home. And so what we did is we, uh, we went through and we identified a couple of architectural firms that might help us with this project. And we ended up um, identifying two of them that we thought might be best to work with. And I'll never forget this day. We had, uh, we had scheduled both of those meetings back to back. And they came to our offices, and so one of them uh, was the first for an, like an hour and a half, and then we had like 30-minute break, and then the second firm was coming in. And the first firm showed up, and we did the pleasantries, you know, handshakes and getting acquainted with one another. And then they had like the first part of the meeting just to sort of uh, make a, a presentation about their firm, their experience, what it would be like to work with them. They had this portfolio of, of photographs of churches they had built and other uh, buildings that they had been a part of designing. And, um, and so when they got done, they asked us to kind of tell us a little bit about, tell them a little bit about what we were thinking. And I said, well, um, your portfolio is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us and telling us a little bit about your organization. But I said, Here, here's the challenge is we're not trying to build a church we already have a church. And I'm not lying, I'm not exaggerating. The guy, there was two of them, but one of them just sort of went like. <laughs> he goes, what do you, I said, no, see, we already have a church. Church is people. And we have about 250 of them right now. So all we're really trying to do is build some kind of a facility that would accommodate the various needs and activities of our church family. And more importantly, 
We're trying to build a building that would help us with our unique mission and vision as a church of creating a place that's really accessible for people who don't really like church, never been to church, walked away from the church, or maybe we're ready to give it a second try. But we didn't want something that looked really, really churchy. And, and most of the things that you've designed, you know, you've got stained glass and steeples and pews and pulpits, and that, that's beautiful, but that's not really what we're going after. And I'll, I'll, I'll just never forget, the, one of the architects said, well, you can't do that. <laughs> and I said, well, I appreciate, uh, tell me why you can't do that. And he said, well, because this area with the Southern Baptist influence, with the Catholic influence, people, people are accustomed to going to something that looks and feels like a church. And we weren't going to get into it with him there. We just said, well, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you for your presentation. And then, then the next group came in. And they did, you know, the formalities. And they told us about their, their firm. And they showed us lots of different pictures. And most of their pictures were these kind of Catholic uh, cathedrals that they had built. They were very experienced. Lots of, lots of beautiful pictures to show us. And they got done their presentation. And, and I said the same thing. And I said, well... We're not trying to build a church. We already have a church. We're trying to build a facility that would accommodate the different needs and activities of our church family and what we're trying to do as a mission in our community. And I'll never forget, it was just a radically different response. And the, the guy said, well, I don't, I don't even understand what you're saying. I'm really interested. Would you mind telling us more? May we sit down and you tell us a little bit more. And so we had this wonderful opportunity to explain to them that Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, a group of people who would gather together in the name of Jesus Christ to go about doing the things that Jesus asked us to do. That's, we're just trying to create something where that can thrive. And then we went on to explain the unique mission of our church is for Christ followers to really make room in their lives for people who aren't Christ followers. And some of the things that we're learning about people who are spiritual seekers is that sometimes the church building in and of itself with all of its traditions and formalities can be kind of off-putting. And so we're just trying to create something that looks like, like an auditorium and a facility that would accommodate on a real kind of neutral basis. And these two architects that were with us, they were absolutely fascinated. And they said, well, tell us as much as you can and we'll be happy to try to accommodate your unique needs as a client. And so we had a wonderful experience working with them because Jesus wasn't interested in building buildings. He said, I will build my assembly, my community of people. And then he goes on to say, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, this phrase had a very unique kind of cultural um, uh, significance. The gates were very important in cities, uh, were the entry into uh, uh, cities at the time. And so the gates of Hades, what that meant to the audience that was listening to him when he said, I will build my community of people, he's saying basically is, and the death, death will not overcome this assembly that's going to grow up out of the vision that I'm casting for 
the church. My death isn't going to stop it. He's talking to his disciples, Peter, John, Matthew. Your death isn't going to stop it. What's going to happen is this assembly of people is going to thrive for generations to come. Nothing's going to stop this movement once it begins and takes root. And it's going to take root through you, the first disciples. As you take the message of the gospel and start sharing it with people that you know and that you love and that you have influence in, and this movement is going to grow. And you know why that's so exciting to me? Is because that was about us. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus predicted us, Cibolo Creek Community Church, that we would become a community of Christ followers who would meet together for the purpose of advancing the instructions of Jesus about faith and life and salvation and grace. Does that make sense? Man, if there's anything that I want our church to get is that this building is not us. This building could go away tomorrow and we'd still be Cibolo Creek Community Church because it's people. So it's interesting. Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia, my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But you know what? Nothing ever happened by way of a building. But what we start seeing is the wheels turning as Jesus invests in the lives of his disciples and then following his death and his resurrection, this boldness that comes about in their lives. And so I want to pick up the story of opening day of the church in Acts chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles with me, uh, turn to Acts chapter 2. We were looking at a passage like this just in our last series um, about the Holy Spirit. So you may remember that the early disciples were kind of huddled together. The Spirit of God comes and visits them and some miraculous things happen. And a big crowd gathers around the disciples like, what in the world is going on here? And so we pick up the story in Acts chapter 2 verse 14. So this big crowd is gathered. They're, they've seen these miraculous things that they don't understand. And they're like, what in the world's going on here? And then Peter, remember Peter? The one who denied Jesus? Then Peter stood up with the 11 and he raised his voice to address the crowd. He said, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you what's happening. Listen carefully to what I say. And come on down to verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Some interesting things happened around the life of Jesus. How do you explain that? He was accredited to you by God through miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, he was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, you, the people in the crowd, you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. <laughs> but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death 
to keep its hold on him. I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now come on over to verse 36. He's, he's talking a little bit more about who the person of Jesus is and who this was that they, uh, they, they crucified just not many days earlier. And he says in verse 36, therefore let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, this enormous crowd of people who had been on hand for the crucifixion of Jesus yelling, crucify him, crucify him. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? We crucified the Messiah. Peter replied, repent. Change your heart. Change your mind about what you thought of this Jesus of Nazareth. Make an about face in the direction of your life. Repent. Be baptized as a way of identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And verse 40 with many other words, he warned them. He was telling them about the danger they were in for having been responsible for crucifying the Messiah. And he pleaded with them. He begged them to listen to what he had to say. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And here it is. This is opening day of the church. That church that Jesus said, I will build my assembly. And those who accepted his message... They were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So if my math is correct, based on the number of disciples and the community of Christ followers who had assembled in uh, Acts chapter 1, and then we take these 3,000 people who believed the message of Peter and responded, and were about 3,120 people were on hand for the opening day of the church. It's interesting. It's interesting the characteristics of these three, these three thousand some people. If you just take the passage, they had some characteristics in common. First of all, they believed. Those who accepted his message. What was the message? The message was the gospel that Jesus had died and paid for sin and offered the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And of that great, big, enormous crowd, 3,000 people go, wait a second, I'm the sinner. And Jesus died for me, and they accepted the message. They believed in Jesus, because that's where the church begins. That assembly of people who constitute the church, they begin becoming a part of that identifiable group when they place their faith in Jesus as Savior. And then Acts chapter 2 tells us they were baptized. They publicly declared their decision to follow Jesus. They, they went on record of saying, yes, I now believe that Jesus, 
that we crucified. He's the Messiah. And I'm putting my faith, my trust in him and him alone. And they were baptized in front of all of their Jewish peers to say that I'm with Jesus. Here in a few weeks, we're going to do some baptisms here at Cibolo Creek. If you've never been baptized, if you've never publicly declared your faith in Jesus Christ and your decision to follow him, we would love to baptize you here at the end of June. So just check out our website for some information about how you can be a part of our baptism. But this was a characteristic of people in the early church. They believed in the gospel. They took a public stand of identifying themselves with Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to me that they knew that 3,000 of them made this decision. So there was some sort of a system that they knew who belonged. They were a part of something. They weren't going to some facility that identified them as churchgoers. No, they were church people. They were the assembly that Jesus had promised that he would build, and they belonged to this group of people. And so here we continue in Acts chapter 2, and we get the very first portrait of what these early Christians did as a part of being the church. Come with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is like a Polaroid snapshot of these Christians so many years ago. Look at this. Here's what they did. They devoted themselves. That word is really critical. We'll come back to that in a minute. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They they didn't have Bibles. They didn't have like Genesis to Revelation. All they had was the apostles, those early disciples, retelling the story of Jesus, what he said and where he went and what he did. They devoted themselves. Please tell us more. We want to know more about this Jesus. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and they devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone, everyone was filled with awe. Isn't that amazing? You know what that means? That means that there was this kind of climate in the early church where people were walking around going, oh, this this is amazing. How do you explain this? This is so powerful what we're witnessing. They were filled with awe. And there was these miraculous wonders and miraculous things that the apostles were doing to authenticate the message of the gospel and the the start of the church. And here's what else they were doing. All the believers, all of those who had made a decision to follow Jesus and were baptized, they were together. They had everything in common. They were just sharing and pulling their resources. In fact, some of them were selling possessions and goods And they gave to anyone as he had need. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were excited to be a part of this. They were praising God and they were enjoying the favor of all the people. And look what was happening. The Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were being saved. They start out with 3,000. Just one chapter later, it's reported that they're now 5,000 strong. And the church just keeps growing because death can't stop it. 
So let's take a look at just some of the particulars of the passage. They devoted themselves to learning the teachings of Jesus. The fellowship, that um, article there in front of the word is very important. They devoted themselves to the family that was, that was being created by these believers coming together. They took, they took responsibility for each other. They recognized that their communal relationship with one another was going to be their salvation because these are Jews who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah, which went contrary to everything they had been taught by Jewish tradition. And so many of them, they were being rejected by their families. And because most of them worked in family businesses, they were losing their jobs. They were being run out of town They were being ostracized in all of the social ways. And so here's what's happening. They can't work any longer. So now they don't have money to put food on their table. So what happens? The family takes care of one another. In fact, some of them said, hey, I have a lake house and and we're gonna sell that so we can get some money and pay for the needs in the congregation. Hey, I I got a couple of donkeys. I I probably don't need as many as I will, but I'll I'll sell a couple of them so that we'll have some money to make sure that everyone's being cared for. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which is a first century way of saying they got together and they ate meals with one another. And for centuries, Christians have loved getting together to eat. It's born in the first century church. And they got together to pray because they needed God's help. They had made such a critical decision of following Jesus with such enormous implications. They they couldn't play church. They couldn't afford to just let it be kind of a weekend thing. They had to be all in. I love this. They devoted themselves to it. It was the top priority in their life. It wasn't just a thing they did in the sidelines. It wasn't just something they did if there wasn't something better to do. No, they devoted their lives to it. They centered their life around the pursuit of following Jesus with this family of Christ followers with whom their lives are being knit together. Does does that make sense? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. And everybody was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were uh, were performed by the apostles. Now watch this because it's Sometimes when you're reading your Bible and you start seeing a word repeated, it's, it's actually called the law of repetition. It's, it's, it's highlighting something that the writer wants you as the reader to understand. All of the believers were how? Together. They were in it to win it, together. They were all together. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who has need, and every day they continued to meet How? together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and they ate how? You starting to get the drift? For the early church, one of their priorities was together. We do this together. We're in this together. We take care of one another together. Together is one of the characteristics of what it means to be a church that's devoted to the pursuit of following Jesus together. 
And then something else that's interesting in the passage, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They were selling their possessions. They were giving to those in need. There was this together sense of responsibility for each other. There wasn't this lone ranger attitude. There wasn't this kind of like, well, my spiritual life's kind of my thing and I'd like to, I don't want to include other people. No, they were in this together and to the point that they were taking action and doing something to help one another because each other needed help. And then we read this, they met together. They met together in temple courts, but they also met together in homes. So in the earliest days of the church, guess what? Go ahead, guess what? That was so weak. The spirit of together. Evidently, it was the practice of these early Christians, there was some expression where they'd get together as a large group. And they'd get together and they'd worship God and they'd study the apostles, what the apostles were having to say about Jesus. And they they were kind of looking around and going, hey, look, this is us. There's like 3,000 of us. There's like 5,000 of us. I'm not in this alone. There's 3,000 other people who are on this journey with me. I'm, I'm part of something that's bigger than me. And yet at the same time, they met in their homes. So there was this large group gathering together to celebrate their faith with one another, but evidently to keep it personal, to keep it real and authentic and to make sure that people weren't being missed when it came to their needs being understood. Evidently, they, they actually engineered some sort of a system to say, hey, We're going to get together in smaller groups of people. Even if it's just to provide a meal for one another so that nobody's going hungry. We can get together and we can pray for one another. And we can discuss what's going on in our hearts and our lives as we've made this decision to follow Jesus. But it can be really personal and intimate and authentic in a smaller setting that you can't provide in the larger setting. Does that make sense? So it seems like the early church had this pattern or a habit where, hey, we're going to get together in larger groups to celebrate who we're becoming as followers of Jesus. And yet we're going to find time and space in our schedules to get together in just smaller circles so that we don't get lost in the crowd and that somebody can know my name and my story and what's going on in my life. So... There's a lot to be learned from just this passage about what Jesus imagined the church to be. So you may remember a couple weeks ago, we asked this question when we read the Bible and certainly passages like this, is it descriptive or prescriptive? Meaning, does a passage simply describe what happened back there in the first century when the church got off the ground? Or is it prescribing something Is it saying, no, this is the way that the church ought to then conduct itself for centuries to come? Well, I think in this particular instance, because of the nature of what's shared in the passage, it's not just descriptive. It's actually prescribing some essential practices of what the church does when it gets together in groups of any size, is that it gives itself to learning what Jesus taught. It gives itself to taking care of one another. It gives itself to praying with each other. Just to simply put it this way, is that everything we see described about what the first century Christians did in Acts chapter 2 
we'll find them prescribed through multiple instructions to the church in the New Testament. Christians, no matter where they meet, no matter what time in history, they're instructed to listen to the voice of God as taught in the pages of the scripture as a way to surrender their life in obedience to what Jesus has called us to do. Christians in all centuries, in all places, were, were invited to pray for one another. And Christians, no matter where we find our place on earth, we are invited to be a family, a fellowship of people who take care of each other. So it's so important to me that we have like an accurate and healthy definition of what a church is. So let's start with this. A church is a group of Christ followers who participate together in what Jesus asked them to do. That definition, that right there can be done in an elementary school for six and a half years. I have friends who started a, a church in a bar. Imagine what they had to clean up every Saturday night before they occupied it on Sunday. I heard some really horrible stories. We won't go into that. Churches have started in all sorts of places because churches are not buildings. Churches are people. People who participate together in what Jesus asked them to do. So it's really, really important to me as your pastor that all of us be agreed. The church is not a building. It's not stained glass and it's not steeples and pews and pulpits. But there's a second thing that I think this passage highlights. The church is not a building. Are you ready? We'll have to work on that together thing. Okay. Um, here's the second thing that I would say is crystal clear from the passage. Church is not a spectator sport. There's nothing about what Jesus imagined. There's nothing about what Jesus instructed. There's nothing about what the early cent first century church modeled that would ever suggest that church was something that you went to once a week and watched. Because church isn't a place that you go. Church isn't a thing that you do. Church is something that you are. It is a way that you go about living your life. It's not a spectator sport. Uh, uh, it, every day, they continued to meet together. Whether large group or small group, what we get from this idea of every day is that it was central to the way that they went about and lived their lives. It wasn't a weekend interest. It wasn't a thing that they did if there wasn't something else to do. They did it because it was who they were. So this summer, we're exploring the idea of get in the game. There's a difference between getting into the game and sitting up in the stands and watching. There's watching the game and there's playing the game. And I think that Jesus makes it crystal clear. The church is about getting into the game. 
So my invitation to our church this summer is that all of us begin the hard work of thinking honestly about, am I in the game or am I just watching from the sidelines? Am I a spectator or am I a player? So I wanna leave you with this question. You don't have to answer it today. Just start working through it this summer. Asking yourself honestly. Okay, just be honest. There's no value in deceiving yourself. Just be honest. Answer this question. Are you in the game of what's happening here at Cibolo Creek Community Ecclesia? Are you a part of the fellowship? Are you offering or contributing in some way to the health and the good of this church family in all that it has to do? Are you in the game? Are you in the stands? And you know what? Only you can answer that question. And so I invite you, would you prayerfully and diligently think through the evidence between whether you're in the stands or in the game? Jesus said, I will build my movement and death will not stop it. And here we are 2000 years later with a crystal clear sense of the mission of Jesus Christ to share the gospel with our community, our neighbors, our friends, our world. And we need everybody in the game in order for that to be a success. Make sense?